Please will you turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 4 this morning, and we're just going to be reading the first five verses of chapter 4 of 1 Timothy. One Timothy chapter four, reading from verses one to five. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Just so far in God's word today, please keep that portion of scripture open before you. Uh, Cliff has already prayed for the preaching of the word this morning. So I wanna just start then this morning by asking you perhaps a strange question at the beginning of a church service, which is this, do you believe in the devil? Do you believe that Satan exists as a personal evil being who is the commander of a whole host uh, of fallen evil angels, which we call demons? Do you believe that the spiritual realm is real? Or is it just the stuff of Hollywood movies and fairy tales? Well, perhaps you're not aware that the Bible mentions Satan 53 times, the devil another 34 times, demons and evil spirits well over 50 times, and hell and Hades and the lake of fire uh, another 30 odd times. And so the Bible has a lot to say about the evil forces of darkness in the spiritual realm. Now, because we live in the physical realm and we only see the, the physical world around us when we read the Bible, I think sometimes we can become so earthly-minded that we do not grasp the true spiritual reality which is behind the existence of the physical. So let's take, for example, the birth of Jesus. We know the story well about a, a baby born to a young virgin called Mary and about a wicked king who tried to kill the baby, and about the, this baby who later grew up into a man who died on a cross, and after rising from the dead, he then ascended into heaven. Just before he ascended into heaven, however, he commissioned 12 of his friends to go and tell all the world about him. And as they did, people started to join a new movement called the church, a movement which was opposed with great opposition and persecution and suffering, and yet a movement which has continued till this very day. Now, nothing I've just said about the story of Jesus is untrue, but it's far from the full picture, is it? Not at all, because when we look at, for example, Revelation chapter 12, which we, we studied a, a, a little while back, we're given a, a glimpse behind the scenes of the, the physical realm and the physical story that I've just briefly recounted to you. We see into the spiritual dimension. Hopefully you recall our, our studies in Revelation chapter 12 where Jesus lifts the veil for us to see behind the physical 
and, and we see a woman about to give birth to a man-child, but then John sees a great red dragon who stood before the woman who was about to give birth, waiting to devour the child. But then as the child was born, the child that would rule all the nations of the world, this child was caught up to God and the woman fled into the wilderness. And then there was this great battle in heaven between the dragon Satan and his demons and the angel archangel Michael and his angels and the dragon and his demons were thrown down to earth. And so when the dragon realized his defeat, he was furious and he went off to, to make war against the woman and against her offspring, all those who keep the commands of God. That's just a brief summary of Revelation 12, 1 to 17. And as we studied that passage uh, a couple months ago, we were given a, a real perspective into the spiritual dimension. And so the question I, I need to ask you this morning is, does the Bible's insight into the spiritual realm scare you? To think of the devil as a, a great red dragon who with his demons is behind all the events of history, the evil events, who pursues the children of God in order to, to destroy them. The Bible says he's furious. He prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he can devour. Does that bother you this morning? Does it perhaps even terrify you? Or are you quite indifferent to these accounts and, and hear them but process them like fairy tales? Well, I would argue that we should be terrified as we consider what the scripture says about Satan and the evil realm. That's why Paul says in Ephesians chapter six, if this was all a, a fairy tale, what Paul says in Ephesians six makes no sense. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That is the reality of the life that we are living as Christians. We are in a spiritual battle. And so according to God's word, we are spiritual creatures living in this physical world, but we are waging war in the spiritual realm against all the cosmic powers of evil in the spiritual dimension. Now if you do not believe that the devil is real and that he is warring after your soul, then it only confirms what we will be considering in 1 Timothy today, which is that you have already been deceived by the great enemy of God. You've been lulled into a false sense of security and, and comfort, and, and you are in the most dangerous conditions as you consider what lies ahead of you. If you were to die today, your eternal condemnation awaits. Now we must remember that what we are studying today in chapter four follows on directly from chapter three, verses 14 to 16, which we read last week. Uh, Paul didn't pause in his letter writing to Timothy for a week and say, okay, next week I'm starting a whole new section. No, what we have today follows on directly 
where Paul has been expounding to us the wonderful truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Just look back at chapter three, where he gave this mandate to the church that we looked at last week to protect the truth of the gospel and this mission to the church to proclaim the truth of the gospel. And following this this wonderful declaration of the truth about Jesus in verse 16, who he is and what he has accomplished, Paul immediately goes on and he speaks about Satan and the battle that is raging to destroy the truth of Jesus Christ and to destroy the church of Jesus Christ. And so in the first place in this morning, I want us to consider... um, Sorry, let me just uh, go, there we go. Um, So that's what we're considering this morning, uh, precious remedies against Satan's devices. In the first place this morning, I want us to consider Satan's devices in verse one. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. The ultimate goal of Satan, as we read in Revelation uh, chapter 12 or studied a while back, is to destroy Christ. That was his primary goal. But this, we know, is a war which Satan has already lost. When Jesus rose from the dead on that first Easter Sunday, the victory over Satan was, was won. And Satan knew that it's only a matter of time now before Jesus will return and he will be finally destroyed. And so although the war against Jesus is ultimately lost, the battle on earth continues to rage. And Revelation 12 tells us that the focus of the battle now is the church, the offspring of the woman, those who keep the commands of God and who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Isn't that a wonderful description of us who are Christians? We, we keep the commandments of God and we hold on to the testimony of Jesus. Well, that means we are in Satan's sights. So if you are a Christian today, and I trust that most of you are, you are the target of the devil's attacks. And his primary purpose is seen here in verse one to deceive men and women and boys and girls so that we may depart from, which really means to abandon the faith, the gospel. Now, what are Satan's devices which he uses to destroy the health of the church and to ruin the souls of people? Well, there are a whole host. In actual fact, uh, the the Puritan Thomas Brooks, uh, he published this book in 1652 called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices, where I got the title for the sermon from this morning. Uh, It's been reprinted for the last 350 years or so, and it remains one of the most complete treatments on this topic. And in this little book, Brooks considers four categories, broad categories of Satan's devices against Christians, And under those four categories, he lists 38 devices which Satan uses to cause people to abandon the faith or to turn away from God. The book, however, doesn't uh, leave you overwhelmed by Satan's devices because for each of the 38 uh, devices, Thomas Brooks lists about, on average, six precious remedies 
for each of Satan's devices, wonderful biblical truths which help us to combat and resist uh, the devices of Satan. So although there are 38 of Satan's devices in the book, uh, there are about 200 precious remedies for us as Christians to combat the wicked schemes of the devil. And as I was looking through the list of 38 devices which Satan uses to wage war against the church, I was struck in the light of this passage with the reality that the vast majority of Satan's many and varied devices fall under one overarching strategy, namely that of deception. So let me read to you a few of Satan's devices listed by Brooks and notice that that each one falls under this overarching strategy of deception, deceiving us as believers to believe something other than the truth of God's word. Brooks gives a couple of reasons. By presenting the bait, but hiding the hook. By presenting the benefits of sin without the consequences. By persuading the soul that repentance is easy and therefore we don't need to worry about sinning. By presenting to the soul the sorrow and suffering of those who walk in the way of holiness. By persuading the soul to compare itself against those who are worse sinners. By presenting to the soul the difficulty of performing religious duties to God. By tempting Christians to trust in their own performance. By causing saints to remember their sins more than their Savior. And so he goes on and on. And in each case we see that although Satan's devices are diverse... His strategy is focused, namely deception. So Paul writes this solemn warning to Timothy and to the church. Now the Spirit expressly says in verse 1 that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits. Now when does this great deception take place? Well, it takes place as clearly spoken by the Holy Spirit in the latter times, or a different translation is in the last days. And that is not something that we are still waiting for. It is clear from Scripture that the last days begin with the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2, or beginning with the church age, Acts chapter 2 verse 17. In other words, What the Spirit clearly says will happen was already taking place in Ephesus. That's why Paul was writing to them to tell them this. And it's taking place today, even as we sit here at Honey Ridge, it's taking place across the world, in every country, in every denomination, people are being deceived by Satan, following after deceitful spirits. So the deception is pervasive, it's everywhere. Wherever we look, whether it's from kindergarten and the cartoons that our children watch uh, on TV, right through to high school and university, it's in our homes, it's in big business, it's in religion and politics, Satan's deception is everywhere. And I want us to think very practically about this this morning, to see that what we read, what we watch, what we listen to every day, is either the truth from God, or it is the lie of the devil. It either comes to us from the spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit, 
or it comes to us from the spirit of deception, which is Satan. It either plants us firmly in God and in the faith and in the gospel, or it causes us to fall away from God. In other words, there is no such thing as a harmless lie. There is no such thing as innocent deception. There is a satanic spiritual agenda which is out to destroy our souls. So let's move on then to see Satan's doctrine in verse 1 and 3a. Paul is very clear about the nature of false teaching which has permeated Ephesus, which he opposed already in chapter 1. He's been addressing that in chapter 2 and 3. And now he says, In later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings or the doctrine of demons. The time has come, says Paul, when people will not just drift away from God into nothingness, in other words, the kind of nothingness of the the free liberal thinker, the nothingness of unbelief, or the, the nothingness of what people would call today atheism. No, says Paul. Those who fall away from God devote themselves. They devote themselves. They commit themselves to the, the lies of Satan and to the teachings of demons. I'm not trying to be sort of shocking here this morning or controversial, but we need to take God's word at face value. There is nothing difficult or complicated to understand in verse one, but its implications are staggering. All false teaching, anything which is not in accordance with the truth of God's word anything which does not affirm or align with the proclamation of Jesus and the gospel as we saw in in chapter three, verse 16 last week, according to Paul, is the doctrine of demons. Just yesterday, we popped into that large exclusive books at um, Hyde Park Corner, most amazing bookshop. As I walked up and down the the aisles of that bookshop, there was one little narrow bookshelf called Western Religion, which had a couple Bibles and one or two dodgy books uh, that were under the banner of Christianity. But the rest, for the large part, from the kiddie section, right through the business section to social issues, the majority of the books of that bookshop was not in accordance with the truths of God's word. I'm not saying that there's a lot of books there that don't just speak general truth about general topics and we can take those as Christians and read them in the light of scripture and get value from it. But the majority of the books in that bookshop were pushing forward an anti-Christian, anti-gospel agenda. Dare I say it, are pushing forward the doctrines of demons. That which we believe about anything and everything which is contrary to the word of God is demonic in nature, says Paul. It it has a subversive agenda which is to deceive you in order to destroy your soul. Now, if as we saw last time, the church, that's us, we are the protector, uh, the pillar and the protector of the truth, well, then it's no wonder that Satan's aim is firmly set on the church 
to get the church to slip into error, to get the church to compromise a little here and a little there, so that in the end, the household of God, the, the temple of the Holy Spirit, it collapses. It's left for the vultures to come and pick up the pieces. So I want us to get practical today and let's try and identify some of Satan's devices in our day, in our city, in our families, and in our church. Satan's strategy since the Garden of Eden has not changed. It's the same, deception. But obviously his tactics change with every uh, period of history. And so let's look at what some of Satan's tactics are today. And I'm gonna give you a couple of isms, uh, just words to describe some of Satan's devices today. In the first place, we have relativism uh, or subjectivism, which is the general belief today that there is no such thing as absolute truth. Everything is to be evaluated subjectively or relatively according to my personal experience. In other words, relativism makes me or makes you the final arbiter of truth, of what is true or false for you as an individual. Relativism. Then we have pragmatism. Pragmatism is the teaching that whatever works for me is right for me. So the evaluation of truth and morality or moral behavior is not according to God's absolute standard, but according to what produces the best results. So the general belief today is if it feels good, if it produces a positive outcome for you, whatever that may be, and maybe as long as it doesn't hurt others, well then that thing is good and right and acceptable. Then we have syncretism. Syncretism is the teaching uh, that what I believe can be selected from a buffet table of world religions because syncretism teaches that all religions have some good and some useful things to offer us. And so my personal religion then kind of becomes like a fruit salad of what I find to be most appealing from all the various offerings. So I can take a, a slice of roast Christianity and I can add to it a side salad of Eastern meditation and I can add to that a, a bread roll of traditional ancestral practices and I can top it all off with the gravy of evolutionary thinking and, and voila, I have myself my own very delicious plate of personal religion. And what's right for me is right for me and you've got no right to say anything else. That's syncretism. Then we have secularism. Secularism, on the other hand, says that there is no longer any place for religion in any part of society or public life whatsoever. And so, at best, secularism says anything to do with faith or spirituality must be kept in the private. If you wanna pray and read your Bible, that's fine, but do it in your bedroom and don't bring it out into the public realm. But at its worst, secularism teaches that religion and faith practices should be totally eradicated altogether. And then we have naturalism. Uh, that goes even further to propose that there is actually no such thing as the spiritual dimension at all. And everything that exists, exists purely by naturalistic and scientific laws, which are simply the product of four and a half billion years of random evolutionary processes. That's naturalism. There is no spiritual realm. 
And then we have theological liberalism, which has planted deep roots in Christianity over the last 150 years or so, which seeks to kind of merge all of these previous isms into mainstream Christianity. To the point now where there are many who would call themselves Christians today who no longer believe that the Bible is the divinely inspired and inerrant word of God. There are people who call themselves mainline Christians today who no longer believe in miracles or the supernatural, who deny the virgin birth of the Lord Jesus Christ and his resurrection. They deny that the world was created ex nihilo, out of nothing, by the word of God. And they reject the clear binary nature of gender and God's teaching on sexuality, marriage, and family. These are all the products of the previous five isms, and they are believed today in mainline Christianity. You can be a Christian today and deny all of those truths. And so that leads me on to the last ism that I want to focus on, which is Christian Satanism, which might sound like a, a shocking contradiction, but it is really what Paul says in verse 1. When we blatantly deny the truth of God, when we embrace heretical or false teaching, as Galatians 1 verse 6 says, if you, you move away from the gospel, you embrace a different gospel, which is no gospel at all, we're drifting into something which we think is Christian, but it's actually the worship of demons. And I would put much of the word of faith movement today into this category, the prosperity gospel, which promotes satanic heresies like the little gods theory. I can talk to you about that afterwards if you'd like to know more. It's blatant heresy, it's anti-God, it's anti-gospel, and yet it's being taught openly in the pulpits of certain Christian movements. Then you get mainline Christian sects like Mormonism and Jehovah's Witness. I call them Christian sects who would somehow fall under the Christian banner uh, and yet who deny the divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's heresy. It's the doctrine of demons. And I think more and more of the Christian music scene today is sadly falling into this category where the words being sung by many Christian mega bands to millions of people is the deception and the lies of Satan that is intending to lead this, the masses astray. We, we must not be ignorant of Satan's devices, Paul says. He is the master deceiver. Speaking lies is his native language, and much of his activity, 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen says, is done while parading as an angel of light. In other words, don't think that the devil will come to deceive you dressed in a black cloak with vampire teeth and red eyes. And yet, amazingly today, even when he does come like that, the teenagers think he's the coolest kid on the block. Don't think that he will come to deceive you as a sorcerer with a magic wand and dark spells of evil magic potions. And yet, when he does come like that, as an agent of magic and spiritual power and curses and the children of the world flock to him, the movie theaters are full to devote themselves to him as their hero. 
And don't think you would be fooled if Satan pretended to be God by dressing up as a large African-American woman called Papa or to disguise himself as the Holy Spirit in the form of a petite Asian woman called Sarayu. No ways, we would surely spot his deception a mile away, especially if he, if he told us that all roads lead to God. And yet when he appears exactly as that, millions of Christians have become devoted to him because they believe that God has now become more tangible and more believable to them. I'm sure some of you might have picked up on my less than subtle allusions here uh, to the worldwide cult of series like the Twilight series, Harry Potter, The Shack, not to mention our modern obsession with zombies. But perhaps I'm giving my age away here because those things I've just mentioned are also last decade. Now this decade, Satan's deceptions are no longer hidden behind storylines subtle storylines, but his unveiled evil agenda is celebrated and watched by millions today. Shows like Stranger Things, Wednesday, The Witcher, Winona Earp, Lucifer, Hellbound, The Midnight Club, and Resident Evil are just to name a few of the top 25 shows on Netflix for the last five years. The world we are living in is a world which has been deceived and led astray from the truth of the gospel in Jesus Christ, where Satan and the doctrine of demons is not only tolerated, but Satan has now become a really cool dude who runs a coffee shop in New York, and his industry has become a multi-billion dollar entertainment business. Can I say a word to parents this morning? If you allow or encourage your children to read books or to watch movies about vampires and zombies and teenage sorcerers and demon slayers and shows which turn Satan and hell into fairy tales, you are handing your children over to Satan on a silver platter. He doesn't even have to work for their souls. I'm not even dealing with the blatant evil which is being pumped into our children's minds, into our own minds, uh, in terms of the music that is being listened to all day or the computer games which so many of them are addicted to. The same applies to us as adults, to YouTube. What do we watch on YouTube? What internet sites do we visit? Where's the source of information that we go to for the ideas that we have? unless it is promoting that which is good and right and moral and true according to God's word and the gospel, it is, according to Paul, a deception of Satan and the teaching of demons. And we don't have time to fully consider verse three today, but you would expect these doctrine of demons to be kind of hellish, satanic lies which tell people to drink blood and to sacrifice their children. But look at what Paul identifies in verse three as deceitful spirits in the doctrines of demons. He says, there are those in Ephesus who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created. Really? Is that the doctrine of demons that Paul was opposing? 
Don't get married or have sex and don't eat or drink certain foods. Why does Paul call those things the doctrine of demons? Because at its core, the strategy of Satan starting in the Garden of Eden has been to take that which God made good and to turn it into something bad. And the flip side is to take things which God declared to be evil and to proclaim them as good. That's what Satan does. We see the exact same things today in the hypocrisy, the hypocritical lying that he speaks of here, the insincerity of liars. We see it all around us today where people live by a kind of human standard of morality that we've invented, which we think will make us acceptable to God. So a boy can sleep with his girlfriend before marriage, no problem, but he won't vape or smoke weed because that's bad for you. Or a girl can spend a week with her boyfriend on a yacht, smoking dacha, drinking beer, but she won't throw the beer can overboard into the sea because that would be wrong. Do you see the hypocrisy of the, the lies, of the deception of the devil? And we've got to be all honest with ourselves because there are many areas in our lives where we fall prey to the same kind of hypocrisy. It's everywhere. We live in a world saturated by his deceptions, by his double standards, and it's all demonically motivated and it's very seductive and powerful. If he can get us to think that a few good religious deeds like coming to church on a bitterly cold Sunday morning it's gonna somehow make you right with God. But you go home and you watch pornography on your phone or you shout at your children with an anger that exasperates them and you think, well, it's okay because I went to church this morning. So in the third place, notice what Paul says about not only Satan's devices and his doctrines, but Satan's disciples. I'll be brief here. He says that those who believe these deceitful spirits latch onto this demonic doctrine. They fall away from the faith. They fall away from the gospel and they become disciples of Satan. He says in verse one that these people are devoted to this demonic teaching. The word devoted is the language of discipleship. In other words, there's no such thing as spiritual neutrality. Either you are a disciple of Jesus Christ and you follow him in truth or you are a disciple of Satan and you are devoted to his deception and his demonic doctrines. Paul calls these people hypocritical liars in the NIV, people whose consciences have been seared. They've been branded with a hot iron. The ability to discern right from wrong has basically been burned away so that they are dead to the truth and unable to believe what is right. It's a very sobering description of a person who is not a believer in Jesus Christ. No matter how much you think maybe you were born as a Christian or no matter how much you think, well, I'm not a disciple of Satan because I'm such a nice person and I haven't done anything really bad, the scriptures say that if you are not born again by the Holy Spirit of God as a true child of the living God, if you are not committed to God's truth, then you are a child of the devil and you are a slave to sin 
irrespective of how much you downplay the seriousness of your sin or how much you try and dress up the ugliness of Satan in fairy tales or religious paraphernalia. Listen to Jesus' own words in John chapter 8 regarding this. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. If God were your father, you would love me, says Jesus. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Could Jesus have been more clear, more specific of what Paul is trying to highlight to us in this verse? Romans 1, we see three times that Paul speaks about those with a seared conscience being handed over or given up to their sinful desires to become disciples of Satan. And God does this when we reject the truth about God. Because they rejected the truth about God, he handed them over. So then this is the biblical description of those who follow after these deceitful spirits and devote themselves to the doctrines of demons. Do not be fooled. If you fall away from the truth, if you depart from the faith, you are not choosing for yourself an alternative path that gets you to God. You are breaking rank with Jesus Christ and you are joining up as a disciple of Satan. One of the greatest lies of the devil today is that there are many roads to God and as long as we are just sincere, our journey will be okay. No, says Paul, chapter three, verse 16, great indeed we confess is the mystery of the gospel, the mystery of godliness. He was manifest in the flesh, vindicated by the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up into glory. This is the Jesus of the Bible. He alone is the name given under heaven by which we must be saved. And if we reject him, if we reject his great salvation, there no longer remains hope for us, but a fearful expectation of the coming judgment. So where does that leave us today? How can we ensure that we have not been deceived by Satan? How can we be sure that we are not falling away from the faith? What can we do to, to recognize today if we are not in the camp of God, but are perhaps standing in this in, in the ranks of Satan's army? We're in the final place. I wanna just give us briefly the precious remedy. Paul gives it to us in verses three B to five the precious remedy against Satan's devices. And if you want the expanded version, you can get all 200 remedies uh, in this book. It's still in print. You can get it at Good Neighbors, precious remedies against Satan's devices. We don't have time to explore this today, but quite simply, Paul says that the remedy to the deception of the devil 
is quite simply to know and believe the truth. That's it. The precious remedy to the evil devices and doctrines of Satan's is simply to know and believe the truth, for it is only the truth of Jesus Christ which can set you free. Paul directly contradicts the false teachers here who forbid marriage and they forbid eating or or drinking certain things. Notice he doesn't get into a long philosophical debate about the health benefits of eating fish instead of burivos. He doesn't. He, He doesn't promote the Daniel fast instead of the banting diet. No, he simply points the church back to the truth of God's word. What does he say? Verse four, everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. That's the truth. That's the principle that underpins how the Ephesians should discern the false teachers and the doctrines of demons. That's why we say grace as Christians before meals, where the guy's mom dishes up broccoli or nachos. We eat what God has provided with thanksgiving, for it is made holy. It means it's been sanctified. What does that mean? It means that that plate of broccoli or nachos or broccoli filled nachos, I don't know, whatever, it's It's set apart for God's use in our bodies as we are set apart for God's use by the word of God. In other words, the truth and prayer. Lord, I thank you that you caused broccoli to grow and may it nourish my body that I may radiate your glory as I go out into the world. So listen and take heart to the words of Jesus in John 8, 31. Jesus said so, sorry, to the the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. The precious remedy to the deceitful doctrines and spiritual slavery of the evil one and his demons is to abide in God's word and to saturate yourself in his truth, to know the truth, to become intimately acquainted with the truth, to believe the truth, for it is only the truth of the gospel in Jesus Christ which can set you free. So can I just say that that is why we place such an emphasis on preaching and teaching at Honeyridge. Whether it's Bible land ministry, which will take place during our second service, or our youth ministries on Tuesday and Friday evenings, to our home Bible study groups that meet throughout the week, and to our Sunday services here on a Sunday. It is only through the deep, intimate knowledge of the truth, the doctrines of God's word, that we will be able to find true freedom and practical living, which is fueled by the grace and the thanksgiving to God. Yes, fellowship is important. Doing things together as Christians, fun things, going for hikes, getting together for picnics, uh, doing whatever it may be, that's, that's all part and parcel of relationship that God has given to us. 
but there has to be an emphasis in our ministries of this church on doctrine. Because without knowing it, we are saturated with the doctrines of Satan. And we won't know it unless we become more saturated with the doctrines of God's word. So I pray that what happened in Ephesus when the gospel was first preached there will happen in Honey Ridge in our day and age. Just look at Acts 19, verse 18. Many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. And so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. A rough calculation puts the value of books burned at about three and a half million dollars. That's about 60 million rand. No wonder the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Because the value of knowing Jesus Christ and the truth of the gospel meant that no amount of Satan's deceptions or devices was worth anything except to be burned as fuel in the fire. I'm grateful to many of you who bring us boxes of books which you think us as pastors would really appreciate or we would love to put on our library shelf. Um, Kyle's been tasked with the job of discerning that which makes it to the shelf and that which makes it to the fire. And if the ratio of what's made it to the fire is a, a reference of how much rubbish people are reading, I'm worried. But we do not throw them away because we don't want the guys do recycling to read those pages. We don't want to take them to a second-hand bookshop and get some money books that promote the deception of the evil one, they are only good to be burned as fuel in the fire. Let's take our example from the early church. Let's go home. Let's maybe clear out our bookshelves, clear out the, the streaming channels that we watch. And let's return back to the truth, the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and him alone. And may his truth set us free. Let's pray. Lord God, we again thank you for your love for us as your people, that you have not left us to ourselves in this world because leaving us to ourselves means handing us over to the deceptions of Satan and the doctrine of demons. And so we thank you for your word. We thank you for many good Christian books that help us to understand your word. We pray, Lord, that we as Christians would take full advantage of that which we have access to to know and understand and believe the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to be convicted where we have slipped into the deceptions of the evil one. Help us to go and have our consciences reawakened. Please, by your Holy Spirit, would you not reawaken and realiven our consciences to the truths of your word and give us the commitment to put to death and to burn those things in our lives which draw us away from you. We ask that the word of the Lord would continue to increase and to multiply greatly. For we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.